Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. While others, such as Bob Woodward, have written about the 2016 presidential campaign and now almost two years of the Trump administration, they have been mostly written by outside observers who drew on interviews and leaks. My guest tonight, Sean Spicer, is able to give a first-person account as he served for seven months as the president's press secretary. In his book, The Briefing, he addresses many of the more controversial and colorful events that listeners may recall. Yet what I found most interesting was his discussion of the debates, the campaign structure, the role of once campaign chairman Paul Manafort, and the management approach of his boss, the President of the United States. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Thanks, Sean, for being with us tonight. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. In your book and in some of your prior interviews, you mentioned that you wish more people saw a different side of President Trump. You describe him as being kind and compassionate. Why is he reluctant or perhaps unable to demonstrate this side of his character that you feel is so underappreciated? I think there's two reasons. One is sort of, if you will, self-inflicted. He has built up a decades-long reputation as somebody who's a tough negotiator businessman that doesn't want that veneer to be broken down. It's, you know, if you're going into business or going into negotiation, you want to be thought of that way, or at least that's what he wants people to think. And so some of it, as I said, is self-inflicted. Secondly, I think that there are moments where, for a variety of reasons, the media doesn't want to report on it. So I think there's there's a dual reason why it doesn't get out. So you think there are times when he perhaps was showing that side and it just doesn't get out? Oh, absolutely. Out? Yeah. Both in terms of, and I think because part of it is that it undermines a lot of the narratives that exist. Give me an example. Well, I mean, I can give you, I mean, there's a there's been personal examples that I'd rather not get. I mean, I, I mentioned one you mentioned in, the book, it in the book that, right. that, you know, when my father passed away, he right. was uh, very kind, very generous in terms of, of making sure I understood that I could, I should take the time that I needed to be there with my family and the sure. relationship that he shared some moments that he had had with his father. It was a very genuine, caring moment on a stranger kind of relationship when Chief Ryan Owens was killed in the first action under the president's watch. He was very, very comforting to his wife, Karen, and their children. And then I remember during, I think it was the Super Bowl, the first year, he was down at Mar-a-Lago and he had sort of invited the press to come in and, you know, we put out a whole buffet for him and stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that doesn't get reported. Mm-hmm. He knew that it was off the record. And it was sort of this attempt to, to be kind and caring and considerate without looking to get the credit for it. And yet, you know, and again, it was sort of like, uh, and a lot of folks took it in a very different way than a, a, just an act of, of generosity and kindness. You were, in the book, critical of the debate structure especially in the primary the primary debate, so, yeah. What recommendations would you have that might bring more order and decorum to what was certainly a messy process? One of the points that I detail in the book, and the reason I stayed for a third term at the RNC, was because both parties had no control of their debate structure and process. I think we at the RNC, through a lot of the reforms that I spearheaded, did do that. Uh, the DNC had tried it in 2008, and for a variety of reasons it hadn't taken Um, But I think that it is incumbent upon both parties to have a much greater role in the structure, format, and process uh, that the debates govern who will become 
their nominees of their respective parties. But in a sense, didn't candidate Trump really benefit from the debate structure? Sure. Candidates can use the process. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like if you if you took a football analogy, somebody could go out and get the best kicker in the world and kick, you know, field goals from deep in the, the, you know, if they could find some guy with an amazing leg, that doesn't mean the rules need to be changed. I think we were as fair as possibly could be in the process. Trump just benefited from them because um, it gave him a, a platform to... Uh, and every few weeks he could take someone else down. <laughs> no, well, yeah, but, but remember in the 2012 process there were 23 debates. Hmm. So if you, if you believe that Trump benefited from that, then the reforms that we instituted whereby we had one debate in 2015 and the months leading up to the end of the year and then two going into 2016, uh, we had 12 debates total. They were spread about. The candidates knew when they were. Uh, we had more states involved in the process than, than had previously been the case. So I think that if you actually make that argument that he benefited, then, then the process that we put in place should have benefited the other candidates. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the uh, aspects that I found really very interesting in your book and hadn't seen it reported in, in such detail elsewhere was the relationship between the campaign and the RNC. Yeah. And because you had worked at the RNC, you had a good eye on right. that. And at one point, you go so far as to say the RNC was the campaign. Tell us more yeah, about actually, that. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you highlighted that, Jim. I think part of the reason that I wrote the book, I mean, there are two basic reasons. Number one is because I think for many <laughs> folks in this country and probably beyond, there's a very one-dimensional look at who I am. And I, I felt it was incumbent upon myself to provide additional views of who I was and, and frankly, explain myself to the degree that people cared. Um, but the second reason is what you touched upon, this the debate structure, the campaign structure. What we did at the RNC, we invested $175 million into data and in our ground game. And without getting into too much detail, because it'll, it'll bore the listeners and it's all in the book. Is but that you do in the book, because I you do, talk about Chris I, Carr, I, which I think is right, just amazing. And, and that's, and that's yeah. the thing. Is that, that, there is this evolution in politics where you learn from the previous cycle and try to adapt. And in 2004, Bush had done this thing called micro-targeting and a 72-hour task force where they went out and they tried to extrapolate the views of a finite group of voters and then extrapolate that over a larger group. And two, go out in the last 72 hours and really kind of bang on doors and get people excited to, and motivated to vote. Obama took that to a new level. Um, in terms of field organizing and recognizing people voting earlier and that you could have a much more personal relationship with the data. What we did at the RNC after the 2012 election was invest $175 million and say, instead of doing it for a candidate, let's do it for a party. And had we not, had number one, had we done that in 2012, I think Mitt Romney would have won the election. If we hadn't done that after 2012, uh, I don't think Trump would have won. He was a great messenger. He had a great thing. But we were able to make sure that our, da our data told us where to go, when to go, what message worked. And we had the field operation in the team, in the ground, thousands of people knocking on doors, gathering voter information, putting it back into the data cycle to create this sort of uh, ecosystem. We were going out, getting data on voters, putting it back into the system, then being able to go back out again. And we, when Trump won, right, if you think about that 2020, 16 field. You had Cruz, Bush, Rubio, Walker, um, Christie. I mean, these time-tested politicians that were very successful. Uh, Bush had a huge donor list. Cruz had this field and data operation. Walker had this movement with him. And Trump had a Twitter account. Mm 
Yeah. But people it's, really didn't know that this was happening because when you were look, going up towards the election, everybody was saying, or at least the pundits, yes. inside the Beltway were saying, Republican and particularly Trump campaign does not have the ground. That's there. right. No, absolutely. Because <laughs> what had happened was they, the traditional model was the campaign is, is the varsity team and the, the party committee, whether it's the RNC or the DC, DNC, becomes the resource provider, the JV team. You are there to help out, to facilitate, but you're not the primary thing. So we would come to the table and say, well, we've got this many people in the field. And they say, well, that doesn't count. Hillary has 1,200 people in Brooklyn alone. You guys have 100 people at Trump Tower. There's no way you could possibly compete. We'd say, well, we've got thousands of people at the RNC. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, that doesn't count. And the point that we were trying to make to people is if someone knocks on your door and says, we want you to vote for Donald Trump and the Republican ticket, we're going to collect some data on you, does it really matter where their paycheck comes from? Right. Before we get to your relations with the media and some of the changes that you tried to put in place, I want to ask you about Paul Manafort because okay. he did serve as the campaign chair and he was there for several months. But you give him a lot of credit for the work that he did at the convention. Tell us more about his role and, and what was your relationship with him? So it's a, it's a great question because I, I think that some people in reading the book have misinterpreted this, right? Which is the campaign at a key point right before the Indiana primary in May desperately needed expertise and maturity. It wasn't running the way a traditional campaign was. Now, granted, it's a Trump campaign, so it's never going to run like a traditional campaign. But there was no one with the experience and the gravitas to run a presidential campaign. Say what you will about what Manafort has done you know, in his past and some of his business dealings, but the bottom line is Paul Manafort has been involved in presidential and specifically Republican convention politics since 1976 with Ford. He did with Dole, Bush, Reagan. He was out there. He knew the delegate operation. He knew the thing. Now, to the point to your question, we're going into the convention in Cleveland in July. There is this movement afoot to upend the rules of the convention, to uh, potentially nominate somebody else, to undo the will of the delegates. And, you know, it's been the last contested convention was 1976 with Ford. So we go back and we look, no kidding, here's a guy who actually had been there, was part of the process at a senior level, and could come in and say, this is what needs to go on, this is how you, you know, uh, look at the delegates and group them and, and whip them, if you will, the term where, you know, make sure that everyone's voting in the party line. And, you know, despite all of his other things, he had that expertise and the gravitas that was vastly needed at the time. Hmm, interesting. We have just a few more minutes, and I do want to talk about your relations with the media. And in a sense, did you not get off on a, a bad step? Not, I'm not talking about the crowds. Let's I forget think that's generous. that. Yeah. But <laughs> some of the changes that you tried to make, yeah. like the number of press briefings, yeah moving the, the press room, it's about bringing in the international press. Yeah. Because that's something that interests our, our listeners yeah. here. So two things. One is I had very candid discussions with, with the White House Correspondents Association about reforms that could be made. And they were very much that. They were things that I thought could be a good idea. I consulted them throughout the process on whether or not some of the things would work, some things I agreed with. But I bounced everything off of them to say, would this work? Why wouldn't this work? What do you think of this? And to the second part of your question, one of the things that I'm proudest of that I still, in fact, get reporters saying thank you for, if there's anything, it's, um, it's that we democratize the press room. For so long, the front rows of the White House briefing room uh, which are the mainstream sort of legacy media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the AP, Reuters, NBC, NBC uh, CBS, et cetera, 
they're the ones that get called on the majority of time. They get called on first. And what I did was bring in international press, local reporters through Skype, talk radio, Spanish language radio, urban radio, business networks. Mm -hmm. The idea was to recognize that there is a proliferation of media right now in this country and beyond, because you have a lot of foreign correspondents, that all have questions about this new administration and our policies, and they all deserve the right to ask a question. They all have a constituency. And for too long, in my belief, it was my belief, that you had this elite group of folks in the media that were dictating the narrative that everybody else would report by. And I believed that at, whether you're right, left, or center, you are a niche media, a foreign language media, you know, a financial member of the press, they all have constituencies that have issues and concerns that want to be or should be addressed by the White House press office. And so I spread that out a lot, um, which was something that I continue to be very proud of because I think that there's a lot of voices that had been left out of the discussion prior to this administration. Now, one thing that I'm really curious what your thoughts are going to be about how the Washington Post gives out Pinocchios. Yeah. And, you know, as a few days ago, they said President Trump has made over 5,000 misleading or false claims. Whether or not that's the right number, that's neither right. here or there, certainly he does make some misleading claims. Your job, your yeah. role as press secretary, was it to be the voice of the president? Yes. Or should you have, or do you regret not ever perhaps correcting some of those? There, there were times when I did correct. I remember one instance in particular where the president cited a number of prisoners at Gitmo. I went back out the next day and said, you know, yesterday we said this. A couple months ago, Sarah Sanders made some sort of um, economic statistics. The Council of Economic Advisors uh, went out and publicly announced that they had provided inaccurate information. They apologized for that. I, I think there's a difference between providing an inaccurate statistic or expressing the president's views. And so what I mean by that is if the president believes something and he says, you know, I believe that the sun, you know, will rise tonight in the middle of the night. If that's his belief, your job as a press secretary, whether you believe it or not, is to say, this is what his belief is. Now, it's up to the members of the media and others to say, well, that's factually inaccurate. And I don't share that. And here's why it's demonstrably false or what have you. But a spokesman's job is not to get up and, and you know, call balls and strikes. Your tenure will last somewhere between 10 and 12 minutes. If you get up and say, the president said the following, I vehemently disagree with what he said. It's false, and I can't believe I'm standing here. By the time you get off the podium, I think you're going to I be suspect dead. President Trump would have called you in pretty quickly. I, I don't even know that he would have called. He just, they would have, <laughs> you would have Secret had, Service would have, have walked that right tweet. out. Yeah. Um, let me ask you one last question. Uh, you did work as assistant for media and public affairs in the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. That's correct. In the Bush administration. Certainly what we're seeing now as far as the Trump administration's trade policy is very different. How have your own views evolved? That's a really good question. <laughs> And I'll tell you why, because when I took the job, I was the assistant U.S. trade representative, and I fell into Republican orthodoxy. Free trade is good, no matter what. And so we would get a deal, chorus the South Koreans, uh, we passed the Columbia Free Trade Agreement, the Peru Free Trade Agreement. We started on TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, when I was there. And there was this default that it's just good. And I think, generally speaking, it is. I think what Trump recognized for the first time was that for so many people who do fall behind, that you can't just say, well, 70% benefits, so 30% are just screwed. And Trump said, no, no, no. Those 30% deserve somebody who's going to fight for them, and some of these trade agreements need to be updated and modernized. 
and I actually give him a ton of credit, whether it's Chorus, what he's done with the South Koreans, or what he's done with NAFTA. There's a modernization effect. I mean, just to give you an example, if you're a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, then NAFTA sucked for you. Um, if, if it depends on who you were and what sector you work for. But that agreement went into force in 1994, and I think obviously our economy <coughs> and the world has modernized, and the agreement was stuck back then in terms of, especially in the services sector. Mm -hmm. So, um, for a lot of people, some of these trade agreements, they were just told, well, you know, that's just, that's just what it is and there's nothing that you can really do about it. And who's really going to reopen NAFTA? Mm -hmm. But think about it. In, in the case of NAFTA in particular, I mean, Obama pledged that he was going to renegotiate it. Austin Goolsby famously said towards the end of the thing, we're going to renegotiate it. They never did it. I, I think there's a lot of people who are skeptical of what Trump has done. I think the tariff stuff is interesting, but, but there's no question that in a lot of instances so far he has achieved results that have benefited you know, various sectors in the United States with respect to the current trade agreements and, and future ones. And, and I mean, especially if you look at the auto sector and a lot of the trade that goes over south of the border here in, in Texas, in and out of Mexico, auto parts, uh, completed autos, auto labor, the updated USMCA is the new name. I think well, it'll get a new name in time. I, I, it's just Asmaka or something. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's great for our workers and it's great for our economy. And so I, I think the, the thing that's interesting about Trump that I've said with respect to trade is that I think for so long people were starting to move away from the Republican platform idea and Trump had his finger on it. So everyone keeps talking about him not being in line with Republican policy. I actually think the policy had stayed stale for a long time and had the, the many Republican voters and workers had moved uh, away from where the official party position was. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with China and oh. also to see if how, how USMCA or CA, whatever it is, when it'll be ratified. Absolutely. But thank you so much, Sean, for Thanks joining us. Thanks for having us. me. It's been a joy. And I want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of your book, The Briefing. There's a lot of nuggets in it. I appreciate it. And, and for what it's really, if anyone's interested, you can go to SeanSpicer.com. Sign up, stay uh, up to date with what I'm doing, and also there's, there's information on the book Great. as well there. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.